welcome to Grace Reform, and um, I guess I'm going to still do the announcements for a little while. We have Andy driving a truck. He's carrying Aragorn stuff to Montana, and yes, he will be back, Lord willing, next week. Long ride, but he'll be flying back, so that's a good thing. So be in prayer for him. Uh, this morning, to um, other, way, other means of announcements you could find, uh, in your bulletin and, and, and so forth. So you can keep up with the various meetings. We are having a meeting with Zoom on Wednesday and I'm going over some of the materials on tools for practical discipleship. And I think I've given away all of these, you, me, and the Bible, but I've ordered more. And so we'll have some, but that's the, the material we're gonna go through. We do have some of the gospel tracks on the back. Uh, table, so please pick one of those up. That is integral to this particular study, as we'll find out this week on Wednesday. I also have one of these uh, revised, this uh, gospel track in a children's format. Most of you have seen. We have some extras back there, and it, it does a really good job of presenting that. Uh, we want to thank Gordon for his work in leading us through our study of biblical doctrine on Sunday morning. Uh, it has been a great class. If you haven't been a part of it, I want to encourage you to, to be a part of that as we move forward. I think Paul's going to pick up the next session. And I really enjoyed your conversations this morning, particularly how uh, a study of, of this type of source would have some practical meaning in your life. And um, it was good to hear some of those insights uh, this morning, so we encourage you to be a part of that. Um, one final thing to note as well, in your worship folder, we do have an insert for a song that we're going to bring up in just a bit. For now, we want you to, let's prepare ourselves then to be able to receive communion and worship Christ. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. But what I want us to do while we receive communion, which it is open, communion will come up and pick it up ourselves, return back to the seats, and then we'll receive them together. So you'll be picking up both elements like we've been doing for a while. And in any case, <clears throat> but as um, before we begin that uh, procession, I want you to just remain seated and we'll look at 249. Uh, Jesus paid it all, 249, and sing it more or less meditatively where you're at uh, in your seat, and then we'll do the first three, and then I'll have you stand and we'll receive, and, and then uh, after we receive, we'll pick up the fourth verse and stand. So you're going to sit, sit, be seated uh, during the first three and sing it thinking through what Christ has done. Uh, you know, there's, uh, 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 when, when I look at this idea of Jesus paying it all, he certainly bore our sin. A sin is a transgression of the law. And there's two problems with the law in the sense of our relationship to it. One is there's things that we're obligated to do. And if you think about it, we don't do all that we're obligated to do. An example was love God with all your heart, all your might, all your strength. That's a great idea, and I certainly want to do that. But if I really stopped and thought about it, um, I don't think that I've ever given 100%, even for one second, um, 
when I really stop and think about it. So we, we have failed then to meet that obligation. Beyond that, we know that there are uh, some things that we're told we are not to do. And of course, all of us are guilty on that as well. Uh, the good news is that Jesus paid it all, both the, the merit as well as take care of the demerit, if you will. And that's something that Christ would want you to remember continually. And he has given us this physical ordinance for us to be able to stop, hold the elements, and think about those aspects of Christ. Uh, what a great time to indeed commune with Christ. We need to prepare our hearts to do so. Um, so I'm going to give you a moment first to pray silently where you're at, to confess your sin, recognize he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and to receive communion in a worthy manner. And then I'll pray for us corporately and we'll then begin to sing. So let's go ahead and begin in prayer, you first, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and call you Father because of our union with Christ, your Son. We come to you praising you for who you are, for all that you have done in the past, all that you are doing in the present, and all that you have promised in the future. I pray for myself and your people that we would find our strength in you and you alone. I pray that the joy that Christ has given us to, for us to recognize and know that we might be of little strength, that Christ is stronger and enough to sustain through all the ages. I pray, Father, that uh, although we may feel inadequate to accomplish anything, but through the power of the Spirit, we can indeed put to death the deeds of the flesh. And I pray that we would indeed do so, that we might be a holy people called by you, sanctified by your word, which is indeed truth. May that overflow in our lives. I'm thankful for the time that we are then gathered together as your people to be able to encourage one another in love and good works, that we're able to sing your word, we're able to hear your word read, we're he able to hear it explained. I pray indeed through the, uh, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit that you would speak to the church the way that they would need to hear from you indeed this day. I pray that you would cause us to grow in grace. I pray that you would cause us to grow in a recognition of your uh, mercy, of your uh, love, of your patience, and all these attributes of indeed who you are. I pray, Father, that in our communion with Christ, that we would have uh, 
a um, real affections for Christ overflow in our own life, that it may affect how we um, think in, our, in this day and, and beyond that, how we act every day. We praise you for who you are and all you have done. May you receive our praise in song and prayer and word as um, something that is acceptable in your sight, O God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let us sing together 249. Remain seated. Think of this in a reflective way, how it, it applies directly to you. Jesus paid it all, 249. and death of Jesus Christ for which we commemorate, remember him. Jerry, would you bless the cup and the bread? Gracious Father, we're indeed thankful for the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for us as his body was broken for us, Lord, and his blood spilled. Father, we just pray that you would bless it now as we partake of it in uh, memory of him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This side over here, you can stand, come, receive, and return, and likewise. You need to take this. Get Blake, too.
of the Heavenly Father, even the tears of God as dear beloved children. Scripture reading will be from Psalms 70 and 71 on page 484 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, we've probably all seen some CCM artists take a beloved hymn and then maybe try to remix it and add in, uh, their own chorus in there, and it's sometimes not great. But here in Psalm 70, uh, the inspired psalmist, uh, King David, repurposes and remixes his own material from Psalm 40 and reworks it in uh, to this new Psalm 70 here, perhaps because he's on the run again. His life is in danger again. So again, he crawls out. He calls out, oh, Lord, make haste to help me. And it's a rebuke, again, to things like the prosperity gospel. If you have the man after God's own heart is on the run so much, why would we expect God to be obligated to take all suffering out of our own lives? We also have Psalm 71 here. Uh, Spurgeon rightly calls it uh, the prayer of the aged man. I think uh, you can see in the bulletin I'm turning 39 this month, uh, 40 if you count the Korean way. So I'm maybe not old yet, uh, but I'm getting there. It's uh, inevitable. Lord willing, it's coming. And I'm already older than the life expectancy of an Afghanistan man. It's, it's humbling. Uh, but even though I'm maybe not old yet, I do have a, a next generation. Look in verse 17. Uh, I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. Uh, 18. Oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. Uh, we are talking in Sunday school about how that's uh, passionately talking about that, how that's the, the cry of our heart uh, to not hand over our children uh, here to the uh, uh, to the perversities and godlessness and foolishness uh, that the world is uh, desiring to train them up in. Just yesterday when uh, I was driving my wife to a movie, I saw a street preacher. And my first thought is, oh, his sign's a little awkward. I would do that differently. But my second thought was, oh, at least he's doing that. I'm, I'm going to a movie, and he is on the street sharing the gospel. And this isn't to shame us, but it's a, it's a resolution of the old man. 
Uh, we talked, uh, Isaac brought up uh, the resolutions of the young man, Jonathan Edward, this morning. Uh, here's, the, here's some resolution, joyful singing resolutions of the old man. I will proclaim, I will tell of your righteousness. Uh, so maybe this is a, a resolution for all of us. As we get older, as we get more gray hair, as we get more wrinkles, we will tell of our God's glory to the next generation. Uh, oh, may God be glorified in the reading of his word. Psalm 70, ESV title, O Lord, do not delay. To the choir master of David for the memorial offering. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Psalm 71, ESV title, Forsake me not when my strength is spent. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge, to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have learned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me, those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth, you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will praise you with a harp for your faithfulness, O oh my God. 
I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Amen. The Heavenly Father, we've all seen the difference between the, the grumpy old person and the joyful old person and uh, help us to worship you in a way that will bring us to the trajectory of being this uh, joyful old person that, that tells of your righteous deeds. Uh, we remember some of those early days if we just became a Christian and we're telling everyone about Jesus. I pray that you would give us uh, the grace and boldness to continue on uh, that kind of a uh, impetus to share God's glory with those around us, uh, even uh, on uh, even as we're uh, on our deathbeds and old and gray hair and all of that, and give us a, a passion and grace and wisdom to uh, tell of your deeds to the next generation. We we humbly lift up uh, our little ones to you, and uh, only you can save them. Uh, but we believe by the power of your Spirit, uh, you can do this, and uh, so so we humbly ask that that is what you do. Um, and you, you grow your church, and we, we thank you for that. And uh, use us uh, to do this, God. Uh, thank you for the, the joyful heart that you have put into us and the, the cheerful, willing, uh, giving hearts. And uh, we pray that we would give uh, rightly and with cheerfulness in this offering. And we pray that you would uh, bless it uh, for your glory and your kingdom, uh, both here in Chattanooga and to the ends of the earth. Uh, this we ask in the name of your Son. Amen.
Let's take our outer inserts and stand together as we sing about the Lord's sovereignty and omnipotence, uh, guidance and care in the song of Father planned it all. chapter 18, and we're going to pick up at verse 12 and focus on this section that deals with the trial of Jesus. The first part here is the religious trial. What you're going to find here is indeed injustice. There will be one that will be declared guilty. That will be the innocent one. All the other actors in this scene, so to speak, are indeed guilty, and it will be evident from the text of John. Ever since the fall of mankind, injustice has been integral in our relationships with one another. From time to time, those who feel the weight of this tyranny have cried for a resolution only to devise another system of injustice. I find it a fateful irony in our day 
for those that plead for social justice, devise unjust methods to accomplish the goals which only results in further injustice. 1975, Malcolm Muggeridge wrote in his book, The Man Who, uh, Jesus, The Man Who Lives, he wrote, and I quote, to call for justice in this world, which Jesus never once did, nor did he at any point give any indication of expecting justice or in any of his reported utterance so much as mention the word. To call for justice in this world amounts to, in practice to calling for something which by its nature cannot be just vis-a-vis the law. To cry out for justice in human terms is as foolish as calling for ice water in the middle of the Sahara. From men we can look for mercy and pity and thanks to Jesus from God for forgiveness, but justice never. If we were capable of rendering or receiving justice, we would need no laws to codify injustice no parliamentarians to make laws, lawyers to argue them, police to enforce them, revolutionaries to reject them with a view of remaking them in due course, prisons, executioners to dispose of all who refuse to abide by them. I only care for justice is the cry of every counterfeiter, whether of the hopes or the fears or the just, the cash wherein we live." He concludes by saying, justice is another of the world's great fantasies. In this world, I would would agree from our own perspective and our own doing. The law of God is, as Paul would say in Romans 7, holy, just, and good. But all of us have a natural bent towards lawlessness, injustice, and evil due to the fall of mankind. We like to think of ourselves in a different light, and especially those people who rise to positions of power and leadership, whether it's politicians, religious leaders, officials, and such. We can imagine that the common folk the uneducated, the unsophisticated, if you will, may be uh, subjected to certain levels and susceptible to corruption. But in reality, when you measure mankind, all are guilty. The sophisticated are just more sophisticated in their level of depravity and their way to explain their way around it. I remember one politician trying to define and splice up the word is. You remember that too. The darkness of the depravity of man is expressed by those who should be functioning at a higher and lawful standard. It's clearly seen here in this trial of Jesus. Those 
revered men in the highest of positions and those that are even the various magistrates are all evil in their actions towards Jesus, every one of them guilty for engaging in an illegal trial of Jesus Christ to which we come and see and hear this verdict. Against this backdrop of the darkness, the wickedness of these men, you will see a glorious light. That would be Jesus Christ, who is indeed holy, just, and good. And might I remind you, he is the only one that is perfectly holy, just, and good. He indeed is the standard. And here in the flesh, as he stands before these wicked men, it is even more obvious. And as John relays some of the aspects of what's going on. If you remember in the first few verses here of chapter 18, as we've already reviewed, just to give you the background and the setting for this trial, Jesus has voluntarily submitted himself for arrest. These band of men, if you will, hundreds, probably total group of about a thousand, as I calculate it, they've come together to hand Jesus Christ over to a religious authority. This religious authority imagines themselves to be just and to mete out justice. Their actions demonstrate their ignorance in the calling for the execution of the Lord of glory. It demonstrates their own depravity. The prophet Jeremiah described the heart of man this way. It is desperately wicked and who can know it? The guilty declaration made against Christ by these men highlights their own guiltiness. In fact, the only way they could come up with such verdict is in an unlawful, unjust way. And that is indeed what happens here. In the 1900s, a a lawyer wrote a book called The Trial of Jesus from a Lawyer's Standpoint, Walter Chandler. Um, He helps me a bit in summarizing some of this material from a legal perspective, which is very helpful and, and very good. And by the way, in a great world we live in where I can get his two-volume set for $2.95 from Kindle, but I digress instantly, hit a button and got to read it. But here's what he says, and I quote, The pages of human history present no stronger case of judicial murder than the trial and crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. For the simple reason that all forms of law were outraged and trampled under the foot in the proceedings instituted against him. It's a strong statement, and I think that understanding is essential when you read through John 18, and it helps you to understand what in the world is going on. 
Now, when it comes to the trial of Jesus, let me try to simplify it to you, for you, to some degree. So you can follow along and see what in the world's going on. Because it can be a little complicated and a little confusing. To simplify it, I just say it this way. Overall, and of course we're going to appeal to the other Gospels as well, not just John. But John has a unique framework, which we'll get into to some degree. But in the trial of Jesus, I think it's helpful to think of it as two trials. One, a religious trial initially, first. Two, you have a secular, civil trial by Roman authorities. The religious trial unfolds in three aspects. Number one, we have here in John 18, and in fact only in John, John will uh, describe this part of the trial, and that is before Annas in John 18, 12 through 14, and verses 19 through 24. That's the first part of the religious trial, before this guy Annas, we'll talk about him in a minute. Second, the religious trial, goes. he goes before Caiaphas, and all, the other three gospel writers detail what goes on with Caiaphas, and there's a reason for that we'll discuss later. Nevertheless, Annas, then he goes for Caiaphas, and then before the whole of the Sanhedrin, and you'll find that in the gospel, other gospel writers as well. That's the religious trial. Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin. In the Roman civil trial, he goes before Pilate, and it's mentioned here in chapter 18, verse 28, as well as the other gospel writers. Then he goes before Herod Antipas. Luke tells us about that in Luke 23. And then he goes back to Pilate, and all of the gospel writers discuss that final time. This is when Christ is um, uh, declared to be uh, crucified by Pilate here in, at, the, at the very end, and all four gospel writers mention that. Our focus then is going to be, though, for now, on this first trial, that is this religious trial. Now, if you're reading through the Gospel of John, it is a delight to read through it, but we're going to pull from it this denial of Peter in the context of what we're talking about so that we're not confused by it, and we'll discuss this denial by Peter later on. But John weaves the denial within the trial and uh, for, for purposes to reflect on these two things actually going on at the same time. But for the sake of our, our uh, examination, we'll just look at the religious trial and particularly uh, from uh, this trial with Annas. Our text then will be verse 12 through 14, and then we'll skip the denial of Peter, the first part of that, and jump to verse 19 through 24. Let me read the text in your hearing so you can make a note of it. John 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Verse 19. 
The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. He's picking up, this is Annas. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple, where all the Jews had come together. I said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I pray that we would gain insight into the very word of Christ given to us this day. May we hear and heed what Christ would say to the church even in this day. I pray in his name. Amen. I think this is an amazing account. And again, the way to look at this trial of Jesus, if you will, is the fact that, that it is an illegal trial. Every aspect. We'll highlight just a few. But they are in great violation of their very own righteous standards, demonstrating their own guilt and injustice. And Christ, even in his dialogue, which we'll get to, reminds them of that. And they can answer nothing. The law in which this group at this time was governed by really had two major sources. One, of course, is the Mosaic law, right? They're under the law. But there's also another oral tradition called the Talmud. The Talmud really consisted of two parts, the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Mishnah provided foundational instruction, and the Gemara provided commentary then on that instruction. This was eventually written down. At this point, it would have been oral. They would have known it very well. It would have been, think of it as directions on how to proceed. The uh, Jerusalem, they call it, uh, Talmud was written down in the 4th century, and the Babylonian Talmud, Talmud was written down in the 5th century. So that part is a bit confusing. In fact, the, the Babylonian Talmud, as it's called, it's a, an oral tradition that's finally written down. I'm told that it, that, that one contains as many as 400 volumes. <laughs> a lot of information. Fortunately, we have some scholars and some researchers who have gone through some of this material and distilled it for us. And one of them is this, as I mentioned, Walter Chandler. Chandler's book, from attorney's perspective, is simply to go sift through those resources and glean from it the instructions by which they would have been guided in a capital 
offense case. That's what we have here in the trial. They're wanting to execute Jesus. It's a capital offense. Well, there's some guidelines on how they would function in their courts, if you will. That is the religious trial, the Jewish trial, so that justice would be done. Justice was not done. And one of the irregularities that demonstrate that can be found right here in the beginning in the setting. Notice in verse 12, it says that these soldiers and the captain and the officers of the Jews came and arrested Jesus and bound him. They led him to Annas, verse 13. Annas is the patriarch, which we'll discuss here, here in a minute. But what's the setting when these officers bind Jesus and then bring him to the religious authority? You'll find that in verse 3, an indication of it. If you remember, Jesus is with his disciples. He finishes teaching them. He prays for them. He leads them out in the garden it is very late. We don't know the precise hour, but it's dark. And notice verse 3 in chapter 18, an indication of it. This band that came to arrest him in verse 12, what do they have with them? Lanterns and torches. Of course they do, because it's dark. Um, it's night. So what's wrong with that? Because the trial, the Jewish trial, the guidelines that they had with volumes and volumes of material said it needed to be done during the day. Chandler writes this. It was to be conducted between the offering of the morning sacrifice and the offering of the evening sacrifice, that is, daylight. With a reminder that all that was done was to be done within clear view of God and by those who stood in a proper relationship to him. Do you get the imagery? They would do it in, we would call this sunshine, right? You, you wouldn't do it secretly behind uh, a, a way in a nefarious way. To go and grab him in dark and bring him to trial in the, the middle of the night, which it was probably early Friday morning by this point, um, demonstrates a clear violation of their own rules of justice and demonstrates them to be unjust. John is um, also demonstrating here in picturing Jesus Christ, the glorious light brought in to that which is very dark. Jesus, it says in our text, was brought in in the dark of the night, violating their very own law. The the soldiers bring him, notice here in verse 12, they bring him, uh, and then verse 13, to Annas. They bring him to the Jews. These Roman soldiers that are there, and part of it, are acting on behalf of the Jewish officials, if you will. 
We don't know precisely what happened to them. Presumably, everything seemed to be in order. There wasn't some mob that tried to rescue Jesus. He submitted himself. He allowed himself to be bound. And then he goes bound calmly and peacefully to go before the religious leaders. The Rome soldiers and the group of people there disbanded most likely here, perhaps even returning to their own barracks, which would have been nearby at Fort Antonio. They were done. They kept the peace, and Jesus went in bound. It reminds me what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, like a lamb that was brought to a slaughter. Jesus came in bound, The soldiers were gone, but so were the disciples. It reminds me of a text I read in our prayer meeting this morning from Zechariah 13, 7. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Matthew records for us and tells us in Matthew 26, and so did some of the other gospel writers, At this very point, when Jesus was bound and led, all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus went bound to this illegal trial in the dark of night alone. They violated their own guidance. In this trial, and really demonstrated their own in wickedness and lack of integrity. If you think about it, why why were they in such a rush to do this? They they bound Jesus, and and then they immediately brought him to this religious trial, beginning with the questioning of Annas. You see, there was an urgency actually to get this done. They needed to push this trial forward. You know why? What was coming up? Sabbath, Saturday. This is in the early morning, if you will, evening, Thursday, morning, Friday. Sabbath is coming next. And you know they can't do something unjust on Sabbath. (laughs) They can't work on Sabbath. So they go ahead and violate their own law so they won't violate their law. Do you see the wickedness of what's going on? The insanity of of their mindset, of the mindset of men who would want justice. Oh, Oh, they want to follow the law, so they're going to break the law so that they follow the law. They couldn't continue on Sabbath, so they needed to get this done right away. I'd also give you a note, too, if you understand how the Romans worked. They typically would work early in the morning, and by late afternoon, they were gone. They were done. So there was also a rush there to get some sort of verdict in by the morning, on Friday, so that then the Romans could take over and 
complete what the Jewish court wanted to do, which was execute Jesus. They didn't have the power to execute, so they had to turn him over. But they, but they had to turn it over early in the morning. So again, this big rush to get this trial done in the middle of the night illegally. Notice verse 13, and let's now talk about the judge, the first judge that sees Jesus. They say they brought him to Annas, verse 13, and John notes that he is indeed the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest at that time. John is the only gospel writer who tells us about this first appearance. Jesus is bound. He's brought into the Jewish authorities. Caiaphas and Annas would have lived nearby in part, what we might think of as an apartment or such, right around this temple ground. It would have been close by. But the first person they bring to is Annas. Historically, I'll give you this real quick. As far as the high priest of Jerusalem at this time, Annas served from about A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. He was deposed by Pilate's predecessor, Valerius. Rome would often interfere with Jewish works. They would allow them to do what they want, but if some of the officials irritated them, they would stress their power as well. So even though um, he didn't have the right to do that for, under Jewish law, they, they were a governed uh, entity, and so uh, Valerius deposed Annas. And you can imagine then the people think about Annas, that he is the rightful high priest, and yet he's not legally serving according to Rome. In the Levitical Code, the high priest was to serve for their lifetime, but you can see the confusion and chaos going on. Annas then serves more or less as a patriarch, a leader still among the Jews. Annas had a son, Eleazar. He's not mentioned in Scripture. He only served for a year, 16 to 18. 17 AD, and then you have Caiaphas, who is actually Annas's son-in-law, who picks up in year 18 and serves all the way to 36 and is the official high priest during Jesus's earthly ministry. So Jesus is brought to Annas. He's not the official high priest, um, but he is accused and brought before him He's brought before this single patriarch of this, uh, Jewish, uh, of this Jewish order. But note here, he's not brought before the Sanhedrin. I said there were three parts, Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin. Guess what, where a capital offense trial should take place? Before a single judge that is uh, questionable and deposed about an official Judge, the high priest Caiaphas? No, neither one of those. It is supposed to be brought before the entire Sanhedrin that bringing Jesus bound in a capital offense case to Annas is illegal. It's only at night, but it's also in the wrong manner. Some have deduced, and I think probably right, you can imagine what's going on. They're in a big rush to do what? Their whole desire is to execute Jesus. That's their desire. So they're in a big rush to get this done. So they bring him to Annas 
it buys some time to bring about the rest of the Sanhedrin. I think that's a good way to think about. But nevertheless, it's still unjust, unlawful, illegal. Chandler summarizes some of this content, and I'll read it for you. In capital... In court capital cases, the only court authorized to sit in capital cases in Israel was the Great Sanhedrin or the Great Council. It numbered 71 members and convened in Jerusalem. It, it, the tradition arose about that. That comes from Numbers 11, 16 through 17. It records God's instruction to Moses of gathering 71 elders in Israel to perform judicial functions. These 70 plus Moses would have made 71. According to the Talmud, the Sanhedrin was organized traditionally into three chambers. A chamber of 23 priests, 23 scribes, and a chamber of 23 elders though it wasn't always strictly followed. The presiding officers were added to, making a total of 71. These three chambers, this is how they organized it, these three chambers represented the religious, legal, and democratic elements of Jewish life. This threefold division is referred to, by the way, by Jesus in Matthew 16:21 in which Jesus says and I quote from that time Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem suffer many things at the hands of who the elders chief priests and teachers of the law this was this threefold division that he must be killed then on the third day and be raised the qualification of these judges, since members of the great Sanhedrin alone were authorized to judge capital cases, the qualification for membership of the Sanhedrin are synonymous with qualifications for such judges. Some of these qualifications are obvious. The member of the Sanhedrin needed to be a Hebrew of the Hebrew. That means purebred Hebrew, if you will. He, both parents, Jewish. He would also have to be learned in the law, have prior legal experience, and he had to be a linguist. That is, he had to be able to understand other languages because the only people there were the judges. Interpreters weren't allowed in Jewish courts. He must be humble and of good repute. And most important, he wasn't allowed in, um, most important, uh, he was not allowed to sit if he had any personal interest in the outcome of the trial. <laughs> yes. They violated that too because none of them would have been qualified. They all had a personal interest in the outcome. What they wanted was an execution. They weren't there to hear a case. They were there to perform a function and, and make a declaration of guilty. The Sanhedrin couldn't benefit from any of this, and if so, he would need to step aside. Annas may have been a respected religious leader, but he wasn't qualified to be a judge. And furthermore, 
this uh, activity here in a capital case, Jesus didn't need to stand before a single judge. He needed to stand before the entire Sanhedrin. Third, I want to look at the charge then of the, and focus more on the witnesses and the judge that is mentioned. If you notice verse 19 out of chapter 18, what goes on? Middle of the night by unqualified judge, no Sanhedrin, Jesus is standing there, and then Anna starts asking him questions. See verse 19? The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. That may not seem much to you and me until we read some excerpts from Jewish law. The judge was not to ask questions like this of the defendant. This is another violation of Jewish law. Again, I'm going to my reference from Chandler and summarizing some of these aspects, and I'll quote, The judges were never to seek to condemn the accused, but were by contrast to take his side and seek every means of acquittal. The accused could not be convicted by a bare majority, rather a majority of two, that is, 37 of the total 71 judges was necessary. A unanimous vote, by the way, if all of the judges voted, they're supposed to be in a Sanhedrin, but I'm just going beyond that. If all, if you had a 100% vote for condemnation, that was also declared to be invalid. It was judged to be an emotional decision based on mob action. (laughs) The initial guilty vote and the sentence could not be pronounced on the same day. Oh, that's right, it was on Friday, nevertheless. Assuming that the trial had led to condemnation, the assembly then adjourned while each man went home to consider if something had not been overlooked that could have been brought up during the acquittal. Only after a night had passed and the court reassembled and a new vote taken could the sentence then be passed and execution to follow. Even then, delays were sought. As Chandler writes, if, quote, if a majority of these, of at least two votes were registered against him, he stood convicted a second time. But the humane and indulgent spirit of the Hebrew law continued to operate and deferred immediate sentences. The judges continued to deliberate. No one thought of quitting the judgment hall on the second day of the trial. No one ate anything, drank anything on the second day. All merciful tendencies of the Talmudic interpretation were invoked and pleaded by the judges, the defenders of the accused. That's a different perspective than perhaps you've imagined the court. What is going on here, Annas, if he was the functioning judge, he did it alone. He wasn't supposed to be. But beyond that, the judges were the advocates of the accused. They weren't advancing against them to bring up questions against him. They were looking for ways to acquit him. That's what they were trying to do. And let me just mention this as, a, as an aside. If anything, what the whole system 
and I haven't gone into half of it, but the whole system that they had set up was designed to give weight to that person that was accused. You know why? To avoid injustice. It would be better for the guilty to go free in this life than to punish the innocent for not doing something that they're accused of. That's, that's the point, right? We, we, we want the guilty to pay the penalty, but in the end, if we're not sure, and we have some aspects of that in our jurisprudence, right? There's some safeguards that are at least supposedly built in, but you hear about it all the time about people that are acquitted later on. Maybe the DNA didn't match up or something, then they might have served 20 or 30 years, an innocent man in prison for accused of something that they didn't do. Could you imagine how difficult that would be? So the system that they had was set up and structured to minimize injustice. Well, they're violating it on every time, every turn, and maximizing um, injustice that is coming about. Annas is not to ask Jesus these questions. He doesn't have the right to do it. The Hebrew law was set up to be that way. In fact, Let me just tell you about who is to answer and who is to make a testimony. There were no lawyers in this court like we might have lawyers that are prosecuting this person and that. Who comes before the judges to say anything? Do you remember in the scripture where it talks about nothing is to be brought up except there be what? Two or three witnesses? (laughs) The explanation of these witnesses are this. And codified in the Talmud Code, the, this testimony that is to be brought up would be this. The witness, the accuser of the defendant, the witnesses would have to know what went on, whatever offense went on, from the very beginning to the very end. They'd have to know the whole story. In our court cases, when we hear from a witness, they might ask, well, did you see so-and-so at such a place? Yeah, I did. Okay, fine. Next witness. Do, do, you, do you know so-and-so bought this? Yeah, he did. Okay, next witness. That's not how these witnesses were. These witnesses had to be witnesses of whatever charge was brought from the very beginning and to the very end. And by the way, They couldn't be an insider. That's why Judas isn't here. So they did honor that to some degree. In any case, they had to be unbiased and be witnesses of the entire charge. They were were the ones, actually, that were to bring up the very charge. And beyond that, when I keep saying they, it must be a minimum of two, and better three or more, Their stories had to match up exactly from the beginning to the end. If their stories failed to match at any point, the whole matter was thrown out. Do you see how the system was devised to help minimize injustice? 
Annas asks Jesus this question. What are you teaching? And what's going on, he asks. He doesn't have the right to do that. Notice verse 20. Jesus does answer them, Annas in this case. He answers and, if you think about it, points out the guilt of this very court that's asking him the question. Verse 20. I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Verse 21. So why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Do you get now that you have some background to what these witnesses are supposed to do in a Jewish court, what Jesus is saying? He's standing there before Annas and demonstrating his own guilt. Besides the fact that it's at night, besides the fact there's no other Sanhedrin members there, you know, but besides all of that, and then Anasin is asking questions which he shouldn't be. He's clearly not an advocate for Jesus Christ. He's not looking to acquit him. He's looking to condemn them and then ask questions. Who is supposed to bring out the accusation? It is the witnesses. And would there be any witnesses? That's what he's saying in this text. I've spoken openly. This is, this is not something I'm just doing in secret. I've been out teaching for years. Surely you'd have one or two witnesses that would be able to bring out some sort of accusation. In fact, where are they at? They're supposed to be there right now. Why are you asking me? That's what he said. This most revered, high, and in the minds of the people, holy person. This great patriarch of Judaism is found guilty by Christ. So how do they respond? Notice verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? They resorted to violence because they had nothing more to say. Jesus had, in our terminology shown him up not that he was showing him up but when you have somebody that is perfectly righteous just and holy and Jesus and you compare him to Annas just the very words that Christ say and the very words that Annas say you can see the difference the court officer recognizes that as well and to show his guilt he backhands Jesus if you will across the face what's Jesus' response verse 23 if what I said was wrong bear witness about the wrong but if what I said is right why do you strike me 
an, again, another deep, cutting, profound question. This officer who struck Jesus was out of bounds. There was nothing that Jesus said that was wrong. It was in accordance with their own code that they had um, collected through the years on how to practice law. They were to have witnesses to come forward. They witnesses are the ones that would bring the accusation. They weren't even there. Jesus said, where are they at? Ask them. Have them witness and bear witness about me. Is anything I said that wrong? The answer is none. And so the declaration to Christ at this point should be, you know what? You're innocent. We're all guilty. We've violated every protocol that we've set in place. You stand here perfectly righteous and even appealing to our very own law in a righteous way. And so it would be nice if that's the way, in some sense, if that's the way it ended. Annas may be falling down and, and, and repenting. And responding in that way. But he doesn't. He further shows his guilt and his complicity in the whole thing. Notice verse 23. Instead of admitting that he has structured all of this wrong, he sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. His silence is deafening. Annas has met his match. He's demonstrated by his own actions and that of his officers that he, Annas, and those men with him are guilty as charged. I find this interesting, and I'll finish with this, and we'll jump over to the reference so that you can point these two together because we may have forgotten at this point. But look at verse 14 in chapter 18. Caiaphas is mentioned, and John is sure to remind us when we think of Caiaphas to remember a phrase that Caiaphas has said. It was verse 14, Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. John's reminding us of this, and if you want to see it in its context, turn back to John 11. And verse, um, well, let's go back to verse 45. John 11, 45. If you remember the context, here Jesus had raised Lazarus. And it was Bethany, right? Close to Jerusalem. So, verse 45, John 11, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of the Pharisees, verse four, some of them went to the Pharisees, verse 46, and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? This is the larger Sanhedrin. What are we going to do about this? For this man has performed many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our, both our place and our nation. 
This is the impotence of what's driving all of this, you see. Jesus actually performs a real miracle. They don't doubt this resurrection of Lazarus. By the way, have you ever seen anyone raised from the dead? No, you haven't. I can't imagine the position and the wickedness of the heart of these men who are right there. They, they hear this testimony. They know about it. They have people who actually see someone raise someone else from the dead. They know about Lazarus. They know him well. They know he's dead. They know he's already decaying. And here he comes back to life perfectly whole. And their response is, we've got to stop this. How awful. Amen. And these are the leaders. These are the, the people who think they're doing justice in the land. But you know what they're really worried about? They're worried about their own power. They're worried about their own prestige. They're wor- worried about their own privilege. And might I say, all of fallen man, that's what they're about. Oh, they may tell you a great story, particularly when they're trying to get your vote of how they'll do this or that. But watch them secretly what they do on their own accord and for their own pocket. These people were no different. This is the heart of man that is desperately wicked and demonstrated here. What they're worried about is that they're going to lose their status. If Jesus is then exalted... They'll lose their status and they will no longer be the political power in the land. But God will even use that evil to accomplish his own purposes and in, out of the mouth of a wicked man like Caiaphas who happened to hold the office of high priest at that time From his perspective, unknowingly, verse 49, he responds to the folks that are worried about Jesus. You don't know anything at all. In his own pride, in his own arrogance. You know the person who knew nothing at all? Caiaphas. And the rest of these band of fools. He didn't know anything at all. And so in his ignorance, he said, it's better that one man should die for the people that the whole nation should not perish. What, what he's saying is, I'll tell you, you don't know anything. We'll just kill him. It'll be done. By the way, just as an aside, it tells you how insane that thought is. Jesus just rose Lazarus from the dead. <laughs> And they're going to kill Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm going to rise on the third day. That's what he was teaching them. You're going to kill me and I'm going to rise. And he demonstrated that he had the power over death in the resurrection of Lazarus. And you know the response to that? I really think why John emphasizes this more than once about this binding. They bound him and brought him to Annas. And then when they're done with him with Annas, they bind him and bring him to Caiaphas. They think that's going to hold him. And you remember the tomb they put Jesus in? And what did they do there? Oh, they bound it again, didn't they? Put a stone over it. Put some Roman soldiers nearby. What, really? For a dead man? 
It, it tells you how wicked the heart of man. All of them should fall down and repent and cry out, Hosanna, save us now. Our text goes on to say, he didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, that is, he held that office, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not, and not for the nation only. That is not just for Jews. That's what John's saying. But also to gather in to one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. They are guilty. Christ is innocent. This is the motive behind all that they're doing. But God is still in control. And he will accomplish his purposes and expose the wickedness of evil men. I think we should examine our own hearts we all have a bent and a tendency towards that. And it is why we would look to Christ, who is the holy, just, and good. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you would grant us a clearer understanding of who Christ is, an adoration of him. It's easy to see the foolishness of others, but a little harder to see it in our own hearts and lives. I pray again our focus would not be on our merit, but on Christ's, and find our salvation in him and him alone. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment now to think on these things where you're at. Let's all stand and turn to 449. <clears throat> because he lives, 449. John 14, 19 says, Because I live, you will live also.
Gracious Father, we pray that each and every one here would stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around their waist and the breastplate of righteousness firmly in place, that their feet would be shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace and that they would take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and have their sword of the spirit ready, which is the word of God, so that they may be able to stand in the evil day and boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.